0: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far...
2: Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This episode contains details of violence against children. Please take care when and where you listen. It's the evening of March first, two thousand four, in Aurora, Illinois. Twenty-three-year-old Noel Quavado is at home with his family. He and his wife Cynthia moved here from Mexico four years ago. Cynthia has been home all day caring for their two young sons, Noel Jr., who's 22 months, and eight-month-old Alex, while their father was working. He's a laborer at a masonry company. Baby Alex is due for a feeding. Home from work, Noel changes his diaper while Cynthia washes a bottle. Alex has had health issues in the past, Just a few months earlier, they'd rushed him to the hospital because he was having trouble breathing. He is actually scheduled for a follow-up appointment the next morning. But as Noel tries to calm him, Alex stops crying. Then he appears to stop breathing. His eyes roll back into his head. It's any parent's worst nightmare. Noel and Cynthia start to panic. They can't even feel Alex's heart beating. They immediately call 911. Noel's brother-in-law, who lives with them, also tries to help by performing CPR. Thankfully, when paramedics arrive, they manage to get Alex breathing. Once stabilized, he is taken to the hospital by ambulance and put on a respirator. But he's still in critical condition, and no one knows exactly why. Eventually, doctors make the decision to fly Alex to a hospital with a more sophisticated pediatric ICU but his condition doesn't improve despite all efforts 8-month-old Alex Quivado never wakes up one doctor thinks the tragedy may have been related to a pre-existing condition but two others believe there is evidence brain swelling and bleeding that the baby had been violently shaken this launches an investigation in which both of Alex's parents fresh from the trauma of his death are interrogated for hours on end. Neither speak English well, and they are questioned separately. The detectives push Noel, accusing him of shaking his son. He denies it. Here's Noel talking about that interview. He's talking on the phone, so it's a little hard to hear him.
1: I told him, I'm telling you the truth, why you don't believe me? And they say, okay, if you don't tell me what you did to your son, We will take away your other son, and you and your
3: wife are going to jail for a long time. Noel says the detectives threatened to put both him and his wife in jail. If both Noel and Cynthia are in prison, who will take care of their other son, Noel Jr.?
4: You know, you are a young individual from a different country, and now you're sitting in front of, like, police officers. Your son just died. So, you're scared, afraid, you're shocked, you're confused. That's private
3: investigator Sylvia bassage Katie. So, in a moment of desperation, Noel tells the detectives what they want to hear.
1: So, that's when I come up with the idea, the lie, to get my wife free so she can get her son back. And I say, okay, I hear it. Let my wife
3: go. Noel tells them he caused his son's death. He is charged with first-degree murder. When he explains that he only confessed to protect his family, police and prosecutors don't believe him. But eventually, others do.
4: The only thing I know that he is innocent. He did not kill the baby. He did not want to kill the baby. And that's what I'm
3: sure about. I'm Molly Herman, and this is CSI On
5: Trial. Two or three stains are really not enough to call something an impact spatter from gunshot that's going to put someone in prison the rest of their life. You
6: thought that
7: making up a lie was going to get you home sooner?
5: That's what they told. What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area?
7: Sir, did you um, see who shot at you? I did not.
2: He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot
3: before I take a plea bar
7: The problem with forensic science in the criminal legal system today is that it's an awful lot of forensic and not an awful lot of science.
3: Episode 6, Shaken Baby Syndrome. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, and the World Health Organization all describe shaken baby syndrome as a leading cause of child abuse death. And the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome says hospitals report between 1,200 and 1,400 cases each year in the US. They actually believe the real number of cases is even higher. In medical school, doctors are trained to recognize the three telltale symptoms that indicate a case of shaken baby syndrome subdural hematoma or bleeding on the brain retinal hemorrhaging or bleeding in the back of the eye and brain swelling they're known as the triad dr howard dubowitz has diagnosed and studied shaken baby syndrome for decades a professor of pediatrics at the university of maryland school of medicine he explains the concept
8: one of the reasons that young babies are especially susceptible to shaken baby syndrome is that the neck muscles are actually poorly developed. And interestingly, in babies, the head is relatively large compared to the rest of the body. So when that child is, say, held by the trunk or arms and roughly vigorously shaken, that head can really bob around and move back and forth, or sideways, or rotate. And it's that movement, especially, that makes them susceptible to the bleeding around the brain and to the brain being injured, sometimes like whiplash.
3: The idea behind shaken baby syndrome is actually rooted in the mechanics of whiplash, a biomechanical concept developed in the 1960s by traumatic brain injury researcher Dr. Ayub Omaya. Dr. Ken Monson, director of the University of Utah's Head Injury and Vessel Biomechanics Lab, explains the history.
5: Shaken baby syndrome was, I think the right word is hypothesized, right around 1970 by a couple of different people. It was largely based on experiments that had been conducted on primates in the 60s, where Ayub Omaya, who was a neurosurgeon, had actually produced a whiplash-type event in primates and had shown without a significant head impact that they could generate bleeding on the brain.
3: Dr. Omaya's experiments were designed to mimic a rear-end car collision where the person's head is snapped back but doesn't hit anything. His results caught the attention of researchers studying infant brain injury. If whiplash could cause brain injury, maybe shaking could as well. Flash forward to the 1980s, researchers from the University of Pennsylvania set out to test this hypothesis with a biomechanical model of a baby.
5: They said, okay, well, as an experiment, let's build a dummy that weighs essentially the same as, I think it was a two-month-old infant. And so they weighted the head and the torso, and they attached an accelerometer to the head, and they just asked a group of volunteers to grip the dummy by its torso and shake it as hard as they could to see, you know, what the maximum head acceleration was that they could generate with their shaking.
3: They found, unsurprisingly if you think about it, that the force created by a human shaking the baby model didn't even come close to the force created by a rear-end car collision. More importantly, the force or acceleration a human can create by shaking doesn't reach the energy thresholds required to cause the three symptoms of the triad. Over the years, the field of biomechanics has advanced.
5: Four or five studies have been essentially conducted to repeat those initial experiments with more advanced dummies. The interesting thing is that the accelerations that were measured associated with shaking have not really changed much.
3: Obviously, that doesn't mean shaking a baby isn't harmful. Here's Kate Judson, the Executive Director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. You've met her in earlier episodes.
7: Nobody should violently shake a baby. It is abusive, and nobody should do it. But that's really different from saying that when a child has intracranial bleeding, that they must have been shaken. Those are really different things.
3: Despite the biomechanical science clearly indicating that there was a fundamental problem with the hypothesis of shaken baby syndrome, it became a thing. The science was ignored, and the hypothesis took root, because at that time in America, it found fertile soil. This is the era of movies like Mr. Mom and Working Girl, women and mothers moving into corporate America in record numbers. And the number of daycare facilities was rising too. Along with the guilt parents were supposed to feel about leaving their young children with quote unquote strangers. This, in part, triggered a kind of hysteria over the idea that children in daycare were being ritually abused. They called it satanic panic. Award-winning investigative journalist Susan Goldsmith covers child abuse, the foster care system and criminal justice.
4: People believed that there were clubs of satanists operating in childcare settings pediatricians went into court and said we saw physical signs of sexual abuse in these satanic panic cases. It went on for about a decade. There were many, many prosecutions. People went to prison. People's lives were ruined. The
3: satanic panic frenzy was ultimately debunked, but it was powered by the same force as shaken baby syndrome. What connects the two
4: theories, syndromes, whatever you want to call them, between satanic panic and shaken baby syndrome is it involves a hysteria around children being harmed. As the hypothesis grows, so does its reach
3: in the form of organizations like the National Center for Shaken Baby Syndrome.
6: My name's Ryan Steinbuhl. I'm the executive director of the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. American Academy of Pediatrics, the World Health Organization, the CDC, every single major medical organization in the world that deals with this topic recognizes that this is a real thing that children get shaken and abused.
3: Ryan is absolutely right. All of those organizations generally accept the hypothesis.
6: So we've been doing prevention work since 2000.
3: That prevention work includes focusing on what they call the period of purple crying.
6: So this is a program that educates moms and dads and other caregivers about infant crying, which has been shown to be the number one trigger for shaken baby syndrome abusive piece of head trauma, and how to respond to that crying when you're feeling frustrated, which is, you know, put the baby down in a safe place, walk away until you can calm down, or call someone so you can have some reprieve. We do this program in hospitals, public health offices, in home visiting programs.
3: These advocacy efforts in medical settings, combined with medical training, have institutionalized shaken baby syndrome. Pediatrics professor Dr. Howard Dubowitz again.
8: So typically in a pediatric training program, this is the three-year residency, most residents will get somewhere between maybe a week to a month of training on this topic. Informally through situations in the emergency department, on the wards, in ICU.
3: It's a cycle, doctors training doctors on the hypothesis of shaken baby syndrome. Kate Judson again.
7: What's the most influential is that child abuse pediatrics has become its own board-certified subspecialty. So many of the people who originated these ideas and were really at the forefront of prosecuting these cases are now training the next generation of doctors.
3: Dr. Dubowitz.
8: I've been working in this field about 40 years. Anyone working in pediatrics related to child abuse recognizes the enormous potential ramifications of diagnosing abuse what it means for this child, perhaps other children in the family being removed from the home, people going to prison. It's a very, very big deal. And so we try really hard to be super careful and to get this right.
3: But critics argue that a lot of doctors, and ultimately prosecutors and juries, haven't gotten it right. That the research cited to validate the syndrome isn't credible that other factors like undiagnosed medical conditions can cause those telltale signs, the triad, and that because of criminal prosecutions based on the shaken baby hypothesis, many innocent people have gone to prison. People like Audrey Edmonds.
4: It was shortly after I had my baby that I got a call that I was being charged with homicide, and that is when the nightmare started
0: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: My mind was just racing, you guys. I just, I still look at me. I get goosebumps.
3: This is Audrey Edmonds. If you've ever driven across the country from the East Coast, you notice that people start getting nicer as you go West. One time my husband and I thought we were being carjacked in Indiana, but it was just a lady from White Castle running out to our car with a burger we forgot. Audrey is that lady, the nicest. She's bubbly, you can't imagine her saying a bad word, and she's a mom of three daughters. But she had to watch her girls grow up from afar, because she spent over a decade in prison, wrongfully convicted.
4: First-degree reckless homicide. They accuse me of showing utter disregard to human life. That human
3: life was a baby left in her care. Here's her story. In October 1995, in Wanakee, Wisconsin, Audrey was pregnant with her youngest and running a daycare out of her home. Seven-month-old Natalie Beard was dropped off just before 7.30 a.m. She hadn't been feeling well and had refused her morning bottle.
4: The mom said she'd been very fussy. She'd been up the night before and had been ill with an ear infection. Audrey tried to calm Natalie by feeding her. After 30, 35 minutes of trying to help her feed and trying to calm her down when she didn't, that's when I chose to put her in her car seat in a different room where it was quiet because Natalie was very sensitive to noise and to abrupt movements. But nothing was working. When the formula started coming out of her nose, I instantly picked her up, held her, was patting her on the back. She was not responding. She ran outside screaming for help from her neighbors.
3: She called 911.
8: Oh, my God. I can't. I can't get any life on.
3: Audrey says she can't get any life out of Natalie.
4: That is when the police came, the ambulance came, and then it accelerated into a very nightmare day. Baby
3: Natalie was life-flighted to a hospital, but her condition never improved. And sadly, at 9 p.m. that night, she was pronounced dead.
4: The autopsy found that she had extensive brain damage after I found out that Natalie had passed away. The police, the investigators were very kind to me, the the local ones from Key, and they just came and said this was all regular protocol that they had to talk to me. They had to take pictures, which they did. And I just thought, okay, this is what happens. But I never ever knew that there was any suspicion of homicide of all things. Months later, Audrey is arrested and charged with first-degree
3: reckless homicide. Prosecutors presented the case that Natalie had died from being violently shaken. Audrey was accused of causing shaken baby syndrome.
4: It was a total foreign term to me. I had never even heard of it. And when they started talking about it at the trial, I was like, what in the world are you insinuating here? This did not happen. According to experts, Natalie
3: exhibited the triad, bleeding on the brain, retinal hemorrhaging, and brain swelling. So it came down to Audrey's word that she cared for and comforted Natalie against the triad. And expert after expert testified that because the injuries were so severe, they must have occurred shortly before Natalie's collapse. Here are voice actors reading the testimony from Chief Medical Examiner Jeffrey Jensen and child neurologist Robert Rust.
9: It would be my opinion that it would be extremely unlikely to almost impossible that there would be any period of lucidity following those types of injuries.
1: It's my opinion that the injuries had to have occurred between the time that this child was dropped off at the daycare center by her parents and the time that the officer responded.
4: When I heard doctors at the trial talk about head trauma and being equivalent to a fall from a two-story building, I just wanted to scream. Even though the prosecution had seven people testifying, and we only had two because my attorney said it was just so, so hard to get medical people to talk about it because it was such a green, vague area that even then, none of them could determine that anything had happened within a 24-hour period to this child.
3: Natalie's medical records showed that she had been treated in the past for symptoms that could have been caused by a brain injury. But a juror in Audrey's case told us it was the prosecution's expert testimony that convinced them. On November 26, 1996, she was found guilty. Her unwillingness to admit and express remorse for a crime she did not commit factored into her harsh sentence. Eighteen years in prison. Her three children had just lost their mother.
4: My baby, my youngest, I was incarcerated two days after her first birthday. Mm-hmm. And my second one was just over, t- almost three, and my oldest was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a tough
3: day. While Audrey sat in prison, another Shaken Baby case became a national spectacle as Court TV broadcast the trial. But this case revealed the cracks in the Shaken Baby hypothesis. British nanny Louise Woodward was accused of shaking eight-month-old Matthew Epen to death. The evidence presented in court was the same classic triad of symptoms that led to Audrey's conviction. But Woodward had high-profile experts testifying in her defense, including Dr. Ayub Omaya. You heard about him earlier. It was his whiplash study that was used to develop the shaken baby syndrome hypothesis in the first place. Kate Judson again.
7: Dr. Omaya testified in that trial and explained that His research had been misinterpreted, and that really wasn't a correct application of the work that he had done. Biomechanical engineers analyzed the hypothesis of shaking and concluded that it was not a likely mechanism for the injuries
3: attributed to it. And it was really a turning point. But a Harvard neuroradiologist, Dr. Patrick Barnes, also testified, telling the jury that the baby was shaken. Woodward was found guilty Though on appeal, her sentence was reduced and she served less than a year. After her trial, Dr. Barnes began to question his own testimony.
7: Patrick Barnes, in the years after that case, began to dig into the science and really came to the conclusion that his prior testimony had been incorrect, that he was wrong, and, and he thereafter began to publish and, you know, dedicate a portion of his career to, to writing those wrongs.
3: Which is amazing. Audrey Edmonds, facing down an 18-year sentence, tried to keep her hopes up, even when none of her appeals were successful. But new scientific studies were emerging. In 2001, a study was published that directly challenged the medical arguments used against Audrey. It was written by Dr. John Plunkett.
7: He was a forensic pathologist who was confused and frustrated by the idea that kids with this constellation of findings often associated with shaking had to have been shaken. He was frustrated by that because he thought that it was
3: wrong. Plunkett identified 18 cases in which children died from accidental falls on playgrounds. He reviewed all the medical records, autopsy reports, scene photographs, and videos.
7: And what he found was that many of those children exhibited the exact same symptoms as kids who would normally have been diagnosed as having been shaken. And that some of them experienced intervals of lucidity. They were clearly injured, but they were not comatose. They were, maybe they were walking and talking, maybe they were eating.
3: In other words, if baby Natalie's triad of symptoms were caused by an injury, that injury could have occurred hours or even days earlier, rather than in that narrow window of time while she was in Audrey's care. Plunkett's study got the attention of a pathologist who testified in Audrey's case, Dr. Huntington. Attorney Keith Findley is the co-founder of the Wisconsin Innocence Project,
9: He learned some things about that case that undermined his testimony at this trial. And he had actually written a letter to the Journal of the National Association of Medical Examiners uh, in which he had said, basically, we used to think we knew how to time these injuries and therefore how to identify who did it. We were wrong.
3: Keith and his team from the University of Wisconsin Law School were working on Audrey's wrongful conviction case. They called Dr. Huntington. Dr.
9: Huntington, we are representing Audrey Edmonds. And he immediately cut in and said, Oh, goodness, Audrey Edmonds, what are we going to do about Audrey Edmonds?
3: Thanks to Dr. Huntington and Dr. Barnes, both willing to challenge their beliefs, do more research, and admit they were wrong, Audrey's conviction was overturned. She'd been in prison for 11 years.
4: An inmate comes up to me, and she goes... Audrey Edmonds, I saw your case on the news today, and your conviction has been overturned. I screamed. I grabbed this crazy, crabby guard's arm. I was like, oh my gosh, are you for sure?
3: The day she was released, Audrey's daughters were 12, 14, and 16 years old.
9: It became, to my knowledge, the first case in the country in which a shaken baby syndrome or abusive head trauma conviction was overturned on the basis of new scientific evidence challenging the hypothesis upon which the prosecution rested.
3: Less than a year after Audrey's exoneration, the American Academy of Pediatrics came forward to issue a policy statement on shaken baby. It said pediatricians should use the broader term, abusive head trauma, Rather than shaken baby syndrome. The reasoning abusive head trauma encompassed all mechanisms that could cause injury to the head, not just shaking. Kate Judson.
7: They published a new position statement in which they started to acknowledge some of the other possible causes, though they downplayed them. You know, they really implied that they were
3: very rare. But using broader terminology did not substantively change anything.
7: People are
9: still being convicted because the mainstream pediatric community still embraces the shaken baby syndrome hypothesis and indeed has become extremely defensive and reactionary in response to any criticisms of the hypothesis. And so the prosecutions continue. Acquittals happen, but so do many, many, many convictions.
3: And thousands remain incarcerated like Noel Quavado, the father you heard about in the beginning of this episode. He confessed to shaking his son, but he says he lied to protect his family.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick I was happily married
3: with my two kids. But then Noel Cuavado was taken into custody for the murder of his eight-month-old son, Alex. When interrogators threatened to arrest his wife and take away their surviving child, he confessed to shaking his son to protect them.
1: When I went to war, I told the was in my trial, look, I, I lied, saying that I did it only to protect my wife so she can get out and get our son back.
3: It may be a little hard to understand Noel, but he said he told the court he only lied to protect his wife, and so they'd give her back their older son. So, for for me, being like the man of
1: the house, I just step in and say, "Look, man. I, I got a
3: two-son to protect my father." With a confession in hand, the police investigation is all but over. Kate Judson. If you look at the studies
7: where they have analyzed confessions to shaking, they don't do any of the background that is necessary to know whether the confession is A, consistent with the facts of the case, and B, a false or coerced confession.
3: Noelle is not alone. False confessions in shaken baby syndrome cases are surprisingly common. So people
7: are often extremely distraught when they're being interrogated by police because a child has died in their care or you know maybe is in the hospital or has been seriously injured. They might not know why. And even if you've done nothing as a parent or caregiver with a child in your care, you may feel feelings of guilt, even if you didn't do anything. And so grief, guilt, depression, fear, all of these things are things that can coerce a false confession.
3: False confessions like Noelle's reinforce the legitimacy of shaken baby syndrome. This persists, and one of the
7: reasons why doctors have said they continue to rely on it is because people have confessed to it.
3: A thorough investigation would have revealed a family history of illness, including Noelle's brother, who died in infancy. At trial, a defense expert did testify that Alex had been diagnosed with neonatal meningitis months before his death which may have caused a seizure that killed him. But in 2007, Noel is convicted of first-degree murder and given a sentence of life in prison. It's eventually reduced to 35 years. Today, he has been in prison for nearly two decades. His wife, who he lied to protect, has since divorced him and remarried.
1: Now I'm over here for almost 18 years of my life. My older son, I'm glad he grew up as a good man. He joined the Marines. Okay, he's he's
9: going good, but I never was part of his
3: life. Noel continues to maintain his innocence, and new studies continue to highlight the lack of scientific and medical validity behind the shaken baby hypothesis. In 2016, an extensive study by the Swedish government looked like it might be the tipping point.
9: They looked through thousands of published medical articles, whittled it down to 30-some that were really relevant, and of those, they concluded that I think it was something like 28 of the papers were of low scientific quality, two were of medium scientific quality, and zero were of high scientific quality.
3: But so far, the impact has been disappointing. Kate Judson
7: I think a lot of us who work on wrongful convictions in shaken baby syndrome cases, were really hoping that the Swedish study would make something change in this country. That just hasn't been the case. Certainly you
3: see more and more skeptics. Those in the pediatric community, like Dr. Howard Dubowitz, argue that criticisms of shaken baby syndrome have a real consequence when it comes to protecting children.
8: There's been a curious phenomenon now for some time where a relatively small cadre of physicians – and it's not just in the US, some other countries have the same problem – deny that this diagnosis exists or that this diagnosis is been accurately, reasonably applied. And this presents, I think, a serious problem for us. If this child was abused, and let's say has now been, is recovering, that child may be returned to a dangerous home situation.
3: And those on the legal side, like Kate Judson, can understand the hesitation for change.
7: If you devoted a serious chunk of your professional life to stamping out this particular form of child abuse, it might be very difficult to hear conflicting information. We hear that so often in child abuse cases. We just want to err on the side of the child. But the truth is, if you say that someone was abused who wasn't, then they're gonna potentially miss their medical problem or separate them from people who love them or disrupt their family life. And what studies have shown is that separation of a family, even briefly, it causes lasting trauma. So it's critical to just be so careful.
3: The ripple effects of trauma run deep Noel Quavado lost the family he sought to protect and faces possible deportation if granted clemency. Private investigator Silvia Basagicati is certain Noel is innocent. She has spent the last two years trying to fight his conviction.
4: I realized, like, oh my God, this guy is in prison for the crime he did not commit. Like, I want to help him. Nothing was going on for many years, and now somebody... Is helping him and like now he wants to get everything done as soon as possible, which I understand him perfectly. He has hope.
3: Audrey Edmonds' marriage ended in divorce, and after serving over a decade in prison, the state of Wisconsin refused to grant her any compensation. But the same outlook that allowed her to survive prison keeps her going.
4: One of my Biggest hopes while I was away was that with all this new medical evidence coming to surface and more and more people working on these kind of cases, that it would help others. So many are really scarred and struggling, and I feel for them. I mean, I'm not happy, and the scar in my life will always be there, but it fades.
3: Next time on CSI On Trial, an arson investigation concludes a Molotov cocktail started a fire, ignoring survivors who say there was a faulty space heater inside.
0: The last thing that this man said out his mouth that, hey, the space heater on fire, you dismiss it and you just put an innocent man in prison for 25 years.
3: CSI on Trial is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans, based on the CuriosityStream series, CSI on Trial, created by Eleanor Grant and produced by The Biscuit Factory. You can watch all six episodes of the video series right now at curiositystream.com. This episode is hosted and written by me, Molly Herman, and researched by Katie Dunn and myself. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Jessica Metzger is the senior producer. Virginia Prescott, Jason English, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley are the executive producers. Sound design and mix by Miranda Hawkins. Voice acting by Mike Coscarelli and Jeremy Thall. Special thanks to John Higgins, Rob Burke, Rob Lyle, and Brandon Craigie. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick